0: Before we actually get into the Before we get into the sermon, I'm going to uh, ask us to pray because we're going to try to do the impossible today. I am going to ask you guys to stay vibrantly awake and alert. I am going to share with you a truth that I would guarantee you know, but I'm going to attempt to reveal it to you in a way that is impossible from a human perspective. So let's ask God if he would help us and see what comes of it over the half hour, 40 minutes that my mouth moves up here. Father, we just pray that you would, you would open our eyes, that you would unclog our ears, that you would have our hearts prepared and, and continue to prepare our hearts to receive what is from you today. That we might understand the immeasurable, incredible, inexplainable, unfathomable depths of grace. That you would change us radically, starting right this very moment, as you reveal to us what we cannot see on our own, but what only you can give, and what will radically change our lives and the lives of so many others as we live in light of the grace you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Laura and I have been married, it will be 16 years uh, in a couple weeks, and over that time we have learned... Um, through her great wisdom that there are certain projects around the house I do and there are certain projects around the house that she does. If it requires brute force, grunt work, if there's a clear start and finish with only physical activity in the middle, it's me. Give me a massive pile of dirt, 5,000 boulders, anything like that, I, I just go, I do it, I finish, it's easy. Give me a finesse project, like here's a small box with electrical components, carefully read the instructions, go step-by-step step methodically and finish it, it will go really bad if I touch it. You will hear a progressive increase in grunting and complaining and banging and yelling until I walk away from the box and it's done. Laura has a gift of being able to sit and focus and read and methodically go through the process and things work. So we have our separate projects. Part of that is, is how God made me. The greater part is the fact that I'm just flat-out lazy and impatient. When it comes to grace, I think most people approach grace the way I approach a home improvement project. It is force it, wing it, grunt it, try to just smash your way through it impatiently, and you either walk away from it with some sort of half-baked concoction of what it is, or you live with incredible frustration. The appropriate way is the way Laura approaches a project. It is to carefully, slowly, methodically, and patiently approach it, read what God reveals to us about it, and live in light of it being true, waiting for it to come to completion. We're going to be in Jonah 2 today. And as we're in Jonah 2, you will see that what we have is grace in action. We will have a prayer recorded for us in the form of a psalm that Jonah spoke and recorded after the fact uh, in the belly of the fish, of the great fish. And as we look at this, as I looked at it this week, there were so many different things that struck me about it. You have... You have the issue of God's sovereignty, which we spoke about last week. We have the issue of of judgment. We have the issue of idolatry. We have the issue of salvation only through the Lord. But they're all encompassed in this general theme of of grace. And as I was in the back, as we were singing, I, I saw this book, How to Save a Life. I don't know if you've ever read it. I haven't. But I can tell you what it should be about as we look at this. There's a well. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to read to you Jonah 2 first, and then I'm going to show you the other passage in the New Testament, which very much colors in and elaborates upon what we see there in Colossians 1:3. So let's start in Jonah. Then we'll read Colossians 1, and then we'll begin to unpack this text. So remember what's going on. You have Jonah, the prophet, running. God says, "Go to Nineveh." Jonah says, "Okay, I'll go to Tarshish." He goes down to Joppa, gets on the ship, goes down in the ship, goes down to sleep, gets thrown off the ship, down into the deep as he tries to flee from God. We pick it up here, and as Jonah is off the ship, going down, 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 the great fish swallows him up. We talked about God's sovereignty and love being put together. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What you see here, and we'll unpack it, is Jonah going down to his death. He cries out in despair. The despair isn't, I'm stuck in the fish. The despair is, I'm going to die in the sea. As he's in the fish, he's realizing what's going on, what he's done, who he's run from, what that means, what he deserves. He tells us here in verse 4, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What's going on with that? I'll tell you. If you look at God's temple, if you look into the temple, you will find there the law that's recorded and encased. And on top of where the law is encased is something called the mercy seat. And as we'll see here for the first time, Jonah understood what he saw that the mercy seat was on top of the law that can never be kept perfectly, and it was on the mercy seat that blood was poured out and sacrificed for atonement of sins, for reconciliation of relationship with God, not because of a perfect keeping of the law, but in spite of the fact and because of the fact that one could never keep the law. So Jonah cries out, he recognizes the mercy seat in the temple, he cries out to God, he's going down, his life is fainting away, and then you get to verse 6, and you see, yet you brought up my life from the pit. That's when grace smacks Jonah right in the face. And the rest of this, what we're seeing is Jonah speaking as a a runner who has received grace and what that means in light of it. Now when you go up to Colossians, to Colossians 1, anybody already have their finger in there? I see all those hands going up, no one look around. You want to read for us Colossians 1, verses 3 through 6, please? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So among yourselves from the day you heard and understood the grace of God. In truth. See that last part of what Diane just read? As you understood the grace of God in truth. What Paul is saying here is salvation, what we know of as regeneration, we'll talk about this as well, happens when you understand what grace truly is. Sanctification or maturation in your faith, happens and occurs as you understand in greater measure what grace truly is. And that's truly what we're going to talk about today. I think the greatest problem we have as American Christians is understanding God's grace. We could probably pass a test that required us to check a box or give a short explanation of what grace is. But what I want to do today... I want to make sure that we have grace not only coming in through the head, but going down into the heart. So I want to ask you guys a question. What is grace? There's an importance here, Paul tells us in Colossians, of understanding the truth of grace. So nobody's leaving here today unless we give a huge, awesome shot at making sure we at least get that depth of understanding, but let's start with just the knowledge. On an intellectual level, what is grace? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Unmerited favor. It pretty much sums it up really, really well. Because I'm preaching, though, I'll add to it. I'm kidding. It is. It's unmerited favor. It's an undeserving person receiving something they don't deserve from a person unobligated to give it to them, which we might add on, which allows them to enter into something that they don't, something or somewhere that they never should be allowed to be. In other words, grace is us receiving from God what we by no measure deserve and gives us a relationship we are completely unentitled to. The fact that we can take grace, hear that, and go, uh-huh, just blows my mind. Blows my mind that I can do that. Imagine you're in your house. Oh, who cool is it? You go to the door and it's that freaky white van with a publisher's clearing house and there are the balloons coming to the front door and they're like, you're the winner of the $1,000 a week for the rest of your life, publisher's clearing house thingamajigger. And you're like, cool, what do I have to do? Sign right here and it's yours. Fine, give me the stinking check, okay, bye. And you just throw it on your, you know, incoming mail pile and you go sit back down. Who would do that? Imagine they're recording you and they get back in the van and they're like, what was that? They just won $52,000 a year for the rest of their life, and they're just like, ho-hum? Grace, I don't know if you're aware of this, is a little better than that. Just, just a little bit. So how do we take that with the ho-hum attitude? I think it's because it gets stuck somewhere between the head and the heart. It just doesn't fully make Parts of it make it. We, we come to a saving relationship with, with God, but... It doesn't get all the way down. I think there are two reasons for that, primarily. One of them is a comparative moralist problem. I think most of us struggle with this. I'm not a bad person. I've been drunk once in my life, and it's truth. It was an accident. It was a bad episode with Kahlua, and I didn't know Kahlua was alcoholic. So I sat and drank Kahlua milk, which was delicious, with uh, several cats, and I couldn't stand up a couple hours later. So I'm not that bad, I mean I went to college with guys who did far worse than that. I've never stolen anything, not even a pack of gum. I, I, I'm just a flat out good person, I always do my work, I live up to my responsibilities as best I can, I try to take care of other people and be kind hearted, so by comparison to other people, I'm pretty stinking good. So this concept of me needing forgiveness, I mean, really? I understand it's a technicality of theology, I need forgiveness, but really I'm not that bad of a person. Comparative moralism. I think we all struggle with that to varying degrees. You share the gospel with someone, they will rarely say to you, oh my gosh, I am so convicted of the fact I'm a dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing sinner. I need help. I need forgiveness. You ever run into that out there? You will as you share it more, and that's the other problem. They're kind of like the opposite extreme of the comparative moralists. There are people who believe that they are so bad that what they have done is so inconceivably horrible that God could never forgive them. What type of things they do? They vary. Perhaps they've killed somebody. Perhaps they've stolen. Perhaps they've done inexpressibly horrendous things of abuse to other people. And they think, God could never forgive someone like me. He, He couldn't, he couldn't, allow what I've done to go unpunished and forgive it. I am just so horrendous. If you even knew the totality of what I've done, these people think, you would realize that God couldn't forgive me. These people don't typically walk around sharing. You know, you hear a lot of, I'm, I'm not a bad person. Very often do people walk around going, I am such a horrible, good-for-nothing rotten thing and here's what I've done. But talk with them a little more and you'll start to see that there are a good number of people out there who don't think that they deserve grace and they're absolutely right. But the people who don't think they need grace are absolutely wrong. I read a uh, or heard a mission statement portion. It said, just as there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who repent. There is no person so good that they don't need grace, and there is no person so wicked that they can't receive it. That's awesome. The Bible tells us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe it in your heart? It tells us that while we were still sinners, us, Christ died for us. Do you believe that up here? I hope so. But do you really believe that down here? Apart from Christ, no one is righteous, Romans 3.10. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing pleasing to God. John talks about that in John 15, and on and on and on. The Bible says to you that you are utterly and completely filthy and disgusting in your sin to the point that you cannot have a relationship with God. That's what it says. But do you ever feel like that before Christ? Do you ever feel like, I am just up the creek Remember dead Lazarus in the tomb? How cool would it have been to be hanging out in town when Jesus came rolling in four days behind the stone? It's going to stink in there. Remember? They roll it back. Jesus says, Jesus, Jesus says Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes hopping out in his, in, his, in his death rags wrapped around him. He's alive. I mean, how cool would that have been? You understand before Christ, you were in a far worse situation than Lazarus because you were dead in your sin. You were spiritually dead. That should strike the fear of God into you. That that should give you a welling of tears behind your eyes as you understand the predicament you were in apart from Christ. But just as God said, as Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, Jesus came to dwell among us so that we might come out of our sin, come out of our spiritual death, and that happens through grace. We don't deserve grace. We didn't earn grace. Jonah was running from God. God said, Jonah, go here. Jonah said, die. He ran that way. He said, screw you. Leave me alone. Drop dead God. I want to be in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do. Get away from me. And he ran. But what did he deserve? I think sometimes we think of God as a you know that, that super kind grandpa. Oh, Jonah, you little whippersnapper snapper troubler, let's go get some ice cream and talk this over. I'm going to hunt you down, you troubler. That's not how God works. God is just and holy. You tell God you want him dead, you've got a problem on your hands. Not because God is evil, but because God is just and holy and cannot allow sin in his presence. He will and must deal with all sin. Jonah deserved death. Verse 6 says yet and yet. How do you receive grace? You get the and yet. You get Romans 32358310 and put and yet on the back end of it. You get the fact that you were spiritually dead. The parable of the prodigal. I still it's my favorite parable cuz you don't know who the prodigal is the abundant uh, extravagant spender is it the son who wastes the inheritance is it the father who gives to the son who comes back all this stuff is it the brother who wastes his life we all have, have run away from God we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we have all told God I want you dead I want your position I want your stuff to be mine unconditionally the devil did that and he was an archangel But we're telling God, I want your seed, I want you dead, get away from me. And yet, God sent his very own son, so that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When Jonah looked at the temple, Jonah saw Jesus. What am I talking about? The mercy seat foreshadowed the Christ. The mercy seat in itself wasn't paying the price for sin. It was the foreshadowing of who would be the ultimate mercy seat. All sacrifices through the Old Testament were not in and of themselves satisfactory to God. It's because they pointed forward to Christ and foreshadowed Christ. You can't go and gut a goat today and God's like, darn it, they got me on the OT technicality. No, because Christ has come. But just as the animal sacrifices foreshadowed Christ, they also foreshadowed the grace and the forgiveness that was offered, not because it was merited, but because of the big and yet. You will never understand, though, the and yet, and here's a big problem, unless God reveals it to you. You can't get it. It is an inexplainable phenomenon from our position. When you come to faith, you will get it. From where you sit, you will think, oh my gosh, I don't know what happened. But now it just makes sense. I see it. For me, when I came to faith, it was a lot of years I disbelieved God. I knew only idiots were Christians. Now I know it's just about 50-50. I'm kidding. People were were just intellectual fools to believe in something like this. How could they? I I could make any one of them that I came across look like an intellectual fool for what they believed. They basically boiled down to, well, because the Bible says it, we have to believe it. Okay, drink the Kool-Aid. And then something happened that I couldn't explain, and one, one day, over a relatively short period of time, from my perspective, it just all started to make sense, and I couldn't deny what was true, and I couldn't deny who I was and who Jesus was, and I could never explain why. It was this most bizarre phenomenon. It just made sense, and I couldn't understand how I didn't see it before, and how come someone couldn't explain it to me before, and, and now I understand what happened. Jesus said to Lazarus, Get up! He got up. God said to me in a much quieter voice, Get up! And my eyes opened up. And for the first time in my life, I was alive. I began to see what was true. Well, then I started to go out and try to tell a bunch of other blind people what's true. And they would look at me like I was a fool. And I'm saying, But I used to be a fool like you. Look, just look. It makes sense. Open your eyes. Can't you open your eyes? And then I realized they can't. You cannot make a person believe grace. You can't even get it up in the head very well, but it won't go from the head to the heart. God says to Jonah, Jonah is an intellectual man. He's a prophet. He knows the Word of God. It's not like if you told Jonah to, to flip to a, you know, Deuteronomy 7.11, he'd have to look to know what it said. He would know. When you read his prayer, is you understand the Psalms better, you will see what he's doing is reciting psalms. And he wasn't in there with a little leather-bound version. They were in his head. The man had an intellectual grasp of Scripture. So how could someone like that run from God? Because he never understood grace. Sure, he had it in his head, but he never understood the mercy seat before he was in the belly of the fish after he sung through because it took a supernatural work. Well, as we go through life, one of the problems we have is we're first trying to tell people, as we'll see next week, we're trying to tell people about grace, but we're struggling to understand it on our own. But we also have to realize, not only as I came to see what was true through a miracle of what we call regeneration in pastoral circles, born again in John 3 circles, or coming to faith in layman's terms, but I found that I can't make myself mature in my faith unless God's in it, and there's another miracle that happens. Paul's saying in Colossians that as you understand the truth of grace, you come to faith, and as you understand the truth of grace in greater measure, you grow in your faith. So this sermon today, Pastor John, why are you talking about grace? We know what it is, because we need to be reminded of it continually. We need to get it deeper and deeper and fuller and fuller into our heart we need to look upon God's holy temple as Jonah does at the mercy seat because folks we are we are saved by grace through faith and not by works all of our sins are paid for through Christ but that does not give us a license to walk around and act apathetic indifferent or, or like we don't understand who we are in light of it this should be a truth that will floor us that will give us a Matthew 5 heart you know what Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. There should be an aspect of us that grieves over who we were. What we had done and what our state was before Christ. And as we grieve over that, we can rejoice over who we have become. Because the old self is gone and the new has come. We're a new creation in Christ. We're not an improved version of the bad us. We're a new creation in Christ. But that new creation only matures through a miracle. So, here's an important question. Some of you have maybe would identify as Christians from the earliest days you can remember. just grew up in a Christian home. I've always been a Christian. I don't have a particular moment I can identify when I came to faith. Nothing wrong with that. I have a particular day I can identify. I understand that it wasn't probably the exact moment I came to faith. It was the moment ignorant me realized I had come to faith. God doesn't pull a Paul on everybody. Some people just came to faith at some point during their very young formative years, and they—you may very well have been a Christian your whole life. Other people have a radical uh, moment of change in their life, and perhaps it was in that moment that they came to faith. But here's what I want to make sure we all got: regardless of your your identification of when you became a Christian, I want to ask you a question now. And part of me, if I offend anybody, I frankly don't care. I want you to be darn sure, no matter how you grew up, where you grew up, or what you think you believe. Everybody awake here? Because this is the important part. That you truly have received grace. I'm not asking if you know what it is. I'm asking, have you truly received grace? Not, yeah, I know who Jesus is. I know what he did. James would say, good for you. The demons would agree with you too. But have you received it? How do you know? How do you know if you have received grace, if you are in a right relationship with God? Do you just kind of have to hope and when you die and all of a sudden you're looking around, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I hope Jesus is here, I hope he's here, hope, oh my gosh. Or can you know where you're going? I'm asking. Do you just, one day you're just going to have to find out, did I, did I do it? Or can you right this very moment, know with absolute certainty that you're in a right relationship with God. What do you think? I think you're right. I know you're right, actually. What a horrible shame for anyone to go through life and just kind of hope in a worldly sense that they're in a right relationship with God. It's what most people do. They go through life and they're like, "I, I hope I did a good enough job. I hope I said the right things and gave the right amount and did this right and did that right because I hope when I die that I wake up in a better place. It's a horrible way to go because deep down is this wondering am I really? The biblical way to go is an assurance that God gives us that you are mine that I will never leave you nor forsake you so how do you know if you have it? I want everybody to look at their wrist if you actually have received grace there's a little mark does everybody have it? How do you, wouldn't it be nice if God gave us a little mark on the wrist? You're like, oh, woo, I'm good. Come on. How do you know? How can you be sure? It's a great concept to know that you could know, but how do you know? Well, are you a new creation? Is the old self gone and the new has come? Do you, do you begin to desire the things of God more than you desire the things of man? Do you begin to grieve sin? Do you begin to seek to glorify God in all you do? Do you begin to develop that Matthew 5 heart in greater and greater measure? Yeah! Those are all fruits of the Spirit. Those should all be there in in varying measure. Now, someone's going to get a little nervous out there and go, okay, but I don't want to say this, but i really like to ask, what happens if you still struggle with sin? What happens if you really don't grieve sin that much? What happens if, like, I know you're not supposed to be a friend of the world, but what if you just really like some things of the world? And, and you just have a hard time giving them up, and, and you just, you can't seem to shake the habit. Well, does that mean you don't have it, or what do you do with that? Anybody here still sin? So, what do you do with that? I would suggest asking yourself a question. Do you care? You're saved by grace through faith and not by works. The salvation doesn't come when, yeah, he got rid of that sin, he's in. No. It came at the moment of regeneration when you still have the flesh hanging on for a time. But do you care? And in greater and greater measure, do you care? Do you you seek to glorify God? And if you don't, do you care? Can you go through your life and continue to live the way that you did before you came to faith and just don't care? Is your life no different than people you know who don't love Jesus and you don't care? Or do you care? Because if you care, you can take a deep breath. You can grieve your sin. But you can say, God, thank you. I get the and yet. Because I'm really still quite stinking bad. And yet you love me? And as you remind yourself over and over again, we're gonna talk about that in a second, you begin to move from this really messed up new creation to this maturing new creation. Now, you remember when you were like, everybody here was once four years old? Everybody skipped that age? You probably about yay tall. Did you wake up every day and like, oh my gosh, I'm this much bigger? Oh my gosh! And you remember how you grew each day, or when you learn to speak. You're like, you know, you wake up in the morning, you're like, ooh, I got uh, uh, today. You don't remember these progressions. That's why you call your parents. You're like, hey, can you pull out my baby book? Can you tell me when I was two? Did I? Is anyone here the same as when they were four? No. But you don't remember changing so much. Do you? It just kind of happened. Spiritually, it's the same type of thing. But we don't keep spiritual baby books necessarily. They're called journals, and I recommend them. They're awesome. Record your prayers in the journal. Look back in like 15 years at some of the stuff you were praying about and concerned about, and you'd be like, oh my word. Then you get to see, you grew. You got it. You're saved. When we don't, we have trouble. Here's what we need to do with that. There's a lot of reasons God doesn't call us to be independent Christians out there. In fact, it's just flat wrong. It's not an option. Unless God strands you on a desert island, you have no right to try to pull the independent version of Christianity off. He calls us to be in a fellowship of believers because guess what we need? Encouragement and admonition from one another. Because we don't see, from our perspective, very much maturation at times. But somebody else amongst us can look at us and say... No, hang in there, hang in there. You're missing something here. Because look at how you've grown. Same time, we miss a lot of sin in our lives, and we need somebody around us who loves us and who has credibility with us that could say to us, hey, you need to drink more milk and eat more meat if you know what I'm talking about, right? We need that around us. We also need this. We need God to speak to us and remind us daily of the incredible grace love and mercy he has for us because folks we are Jonah he is no better nor worse than us he is the same as us he's a corruptive, sinful person who got thrown into a fish because God loved him so much and look at what happens after verse 6 this is what starts to happen with us when my life was fainting I'm in seven when my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What are vain idols? Belief in anything other than Christ. Everyone you know who does not believe in Christ has thrown away an amazing gift of steadfast love. Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Blech. You know why the fish threw up there? Because God said, Good, I got you right where I want you to be. Go. Now you know where Jonah's going next. There's no secret. He's on his way to Nineveh. And we'll talk next week about how he's prepared to go to Nineveh. And we'll talk in the week or two after about how dude still has some growing to do. And when we finish up, we're going to have the, uh, uh. You know how the book ends? Read it. You can see early. But God had Jonah prepared for what he was going to use him for. What's our job? Our job is to go out into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit and allow him to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. Folks, we're called out to, give, to go out and to give grace. you got to get grace before you can give grace. God, God can distribute grace through a donkey. But it's a whole lot more effective, and it works according to God's perfect plan when we allow Him to show us what grace is, and we go out into a people joyful in the grace we have received. Now, how can you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, when you understand that God is sovereign, that God loves you perfectly, and God has given you what you completely don't deserve to put you in a relationship with Him that you should have never had. When that happens and you understand that everything that occurs, occurs in the perfect providence of a grace-giving God who loves you more than you can imagine, you could say, okay, I'm good. I don't like it, but I'm good. And the world starts to look at you like you're crazy and you say, I am. Actually, I'm crazy because you're crazy and sanity looks crazy to see where I'm going. Upside down, right side up. But folks, we've got to get the grace. We all know it intellectually. If you don't, go online about 4.30 this afternoon and replay it. It's on there. Get our noses into God's Word more. But here's what I want to leave you with today. Make sure you understand what grace is. I don't care what type of home you grew in. I don't care what type of life you have lived. I don't, none of that matters. Understand. Make sure you understand what grace is. It is receiving what you don't deserve from an unobligated giver. Understand who you are apart from Christ. Opinions don't matter when it comes to God. Truth is what matters. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The other truth is... What God has done to reconcile us, us to Himself. And there's grace. Second, this is something between you and God at this point. Make sure you make an honest decision about what you want to do with grace. You don't get in by the My Mommy and Daddy Love Jesus card when you go to meet Him. He doesn't care where you attend church, though I've heard that God's Grace Bible Church has benefits. <laughs> Not on getting into heaven, it doesn't. What God cares about is what you do with grace. Now, I have said to you that you can't see it unless he opens your eyes to it, and that's true. But you are responsible for it. And that means he ain't going to blind your eyes. You have the ability to make a decision about it, and you're responsible for the decision. Now, I've told you what grace is, and I hope you have all accepted it a long, long time ago. But perhaps you haven't. You, you've been, you, only you and God know. Perhaps you're here every week and you haven't. Well, here's what I'm hoping happens today. And I'm speaking to myself in this as I was preparing in particular. Maybe you have deceived yourself right up to this very point. Maybe you knew on an intellectual level what grace was, but you never really received it. Receive it! You don't have to fill out a card. You don't have to walk up to the front. You don't have to do anything but just say, God, I want that! And He will say, You got it! But don't allow that to be missed. Because then we go out and we say to all people, here's the most wonderful gift you will ever see. What do you want to do with it? They could say, throw it away. Okay. You can't make them take it. But you've got to let them know it's there. You've got to receive it. You've got to let them know it's there. You've got to realize that only God can open their eyes to the truth. And the last thing I want you to take out of this is this. The gospel is not something you hear once and you're right with God and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It is something you need to hear again and again and again and again and again and you will never get tired of it. But you will see yourself growing in your faith more and more. I, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be like, Jesus, enough of this gospel stuff, man! Come on, I heard this for years. I'm good. You will see it in new ways that will amaze you. Everything you read in scripture is in light and points to the Gospel. In Jonah, we have the Gospel. First Chronicles 1-10. through 10. Try to read that, I dare you. You're dealing with genealogies that will make your eyes weep in exhaustion. But as you grow in your faith and you look at those, you see, Oh my word, the Gospel is in the genealogies. Genesis through Revelation is all a giant story of what God is up to about reconciling all things to Himself and what will happen after Christ comes back and it will blow your mind and it will blow your mind further after. But we need to be reminded of it day by day on this side. Make sure you understand it. Make sure you've made an honest decision about what you do with it. Make sure you remind yourselves about it. And as this happens, you will go out and be unable to tell people how much God loves them. Something I realized this week, and I'll end with this. I like to talk about me. If you all would listen, I could tell stories about me for hours and hours. And as Matt knows, I can tell the same story multiple times, and I still enjoy it. He graciously doesn't say anything. I love talking about me. If I'm interacting with a person I've never met before, inevitably I just want to tell them something about me. Because I love me some me. But see, what should be happening and what is happening in small and slow measure is that I should be wanting to tell people about Christ. I mean, I don't have a hard time talking. I can fit me into any conversation. You want to talk about planting cactus? I can somehow talk about me. Anything. You can do the same thing with Jesus when he becomes the preeminent fixture in your life in all areas. But that happens only as an understanding of grace begins to grow and grow and grow and bear more fruit. I don't care that much when I talk about me and people look at me like, because I love talking about me. Well, the more I understand how much Jesus loves me and the more you understand how much He loves you and what grace really is, you ain't going to care about the funny looks you get because you understand the reality of the predicament. This is who you are. This is what you deserve. And yet, here is what God offers to you. It's amazing, but it requires a miraculous work for us to see that. I'm going to stop there. Father God, I don't even know how to begin to thank you for grace. It's an inexpressible and undeserved gift that is unable to be given proper gratitude for. But I know in small part what we can do is trust in you, to turn our lives over to you fully, to seek to glorify you, not ourselves, to get out of the throne and on our knees, to trust in all of your ways and lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge you for who you are. God, we all know the song Amazing Grace, but I pray it would go from a song to a lifestyle for us. It truly is amazing. It truly is inexpressible. It is completely undeserved and unmerited. God, I pray that you would you would use something from today for each and every one of us to make us more aware of who we were apart from Christ, why you chose us, and who we have become. God, if there is anyone among us who had not truly received grace before, I pray that it would be received today. Now is the day of salvation, you tell us. For those who have received grace... Uh, Many years ago, I pray it would begin to grow in a miraculous way as it was intended to. I pray it would bear fruit so heavy it would sag to the ground of our lives and people would look at us through strange eyes as you began to open them and they realized the strangeness was amazing love shown by you through us. God, we need you to strengthen and empower us. We need you to put the words in our mouths. We need you to uphold us with your righteous hand as we go out into this world so that we do not be conformed to this world, but we become transformed by the renewing of our mind. And in part that happens as grace comes through the head and down into the heart. And we pray you would do that for us, for your glory. God, thank you for the fact that while we were unlovely, you chose to love us and make us Lovely. Through the blood of Christ. And it's through that blood and through the one who shed it in his name, his powerful and holy name, we pray. Amen.